Yeah, so uh, I guess we just uh, jump right into it then. episode of work stoppage my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we are an entirely listener supported labor and union news show so thank you so much for supporting us on patreon if you do it goes a really long way towards keeping the show going uh if you're not in the discord already go ahead and hop in the discord if you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet message us on patreon and we will get them to you and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help the show yeah. So, yeah, so what? First thing, uh I guess the big news that, you know, has been going around is the uh ecological disaster caused by the negligence of what we've reported on many times, uh the trains, right? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're really going to cover the big threat to America that has been all over the news this weekend. Uh, the Chinese weather balloons. Oh, yeah. wait, no, that's, uh, sorry. That's what the news has been reporting on. Uh, I, I forgot we're, we're, we're not on corporate media. So, uh, yeah, we really wanted to talk about what is not being framed as a labor issue, but definitely is, which is the big rail crash that happened in East Palestine, Ohio, like a week ago, and has barely seen any coverage. And this is a really... <laughs> Dan, really I want to pause. Story. Yeah, I just don't, I only want to pause you for a moment because in all of the t- videos that I've watched on it, they don't pronounce it Palestine. They pronounce it pronounce it Palestine. Oh yeah, oh, it's East okay. Palestine because Ohio and and that region is just weird like that. Pittsburgh has a North Versailles, for instance. Yeah, Versailles. That's Versailles. exactly what I was thinking of too. <laughs> oh man, that's like how I used to live near the Thames River. Yeah. Um, Oof. Ouch. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so just for a real high-level overview, if you haven't heard the basics of what happened, which you very well might not have because the mainstream media seems to think that the most important thing we should be talking about is fucking weather balloons, but essentially this giant freight train crashed about a week ago in East Palestine, Ohio, and dumped a shitload of really toxic chemicals into the area. The big one that people have been talking about is vinyl chloride. And the response from the state was, wow, this is a really big problem. We need to deal with it. And and, and when they said deal with it, they didn't mean clean the mess up or evacuate everyone or provide people compensation. What they meant is we need to blow up this train so that we can get the wreckage off of the tracks as soon as possible and get trains going again. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we need to do. (laughs) They were far more concerned about getting – uh, business back up and running and way less concerned about actually stemming any of the ecological effects uh and so what their cleanup was instead of you know you know quarantining the area and cleaning up the uh, to the best of their ability they you like you said they set it all on fucking fire yeah it's kind of a metaphor for the covid response except it's a thing that actually happened <laughs> It also reminds me of yeah. the response to that time a, a whale beached itself somewhere <laughs> on the East Coast, and they were like, well, 
Dynamite is obviously the answer. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the the whole process, you know, the the, the crash, the the detonation. There's really two big aspects to this. There's what caused the crash, and then there's the response. So just to roll back to what actually happened, the the, the actual problem that occurred that caused the rail crash is an issue that's literally centuries old. An axle on one of the cars just straight up failed. And, you know, that's a thing that can happen if you don't maintain your rail network. And even if it does happen, there are things that could help mitigate it like advanced brakes, like a properly set up car that's that's loaded correctly, and like having a sufficient crew on board the train that is trained to handle these accidents and when something awful like this happens are ready and able to respond. Uh, but of course, all of those options require a properly functioning rail network, which this country does not have. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. that when we were doing our uh, bit with uh, Justin Rosniak, one of the things that was brought up really often was the idea of monster trains, these mm -hmm. trains that are heavily overloaded and positioned in a way that doesn't really make sense. And this uh, was an example of that. Uh, all of the heavy cars were in the back, so if there was any braking, that the cars would just pile into each other because of the momentum of the, the heavier back uh, cars and uh, the fact that there are just not enough people to actually take care of this. And then I saw in one of the the press, like it was like uh, Norfolk Southern talking. I was supposed to be doing like a press release. They actually had like a worker taking the fall and had no <laughs> oh, one boy. from corporate there, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that Twitter clip. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's like everybody's been treating this. The people when there has been coverage from the major outlets, it's like, oh boy, what a bad accident that sucks i'm glad they're quickly clearing the rails and that's mm -hmm. like basically it but framing this as just a a coincidence an unavoidable act of god is removing the blame for this accident from where it squarely belongs which is the rail carriers and the politicians that they own like Norfolk Southern, the company who owns the, the, the train here that, that crashed, like, like every other freight carrier, has been massively overworking their train crews and understaffing all of their mm -hmm. trains. And if they had been forced to actually provide adequate staffing, not just on this train itself, but also for all of their maintenance crews and all of the other support staff that are necessary to actually run a safe uh, rail network, then likely this never would have happened and just the sorts of accidents like this because there are plenty of other derailments that happen all the time would also happen far less often if we had more workers who were not being massively overworked and and this is where it gets into why this is a labor issue and why this is also squarely on president biden's shoulders mm -hmm. because these sorts of failures, the refusal to upgrade equipment, the refusal to invest in maintenance, the refusal to put enough people on the trains so that when a problem happens, they can be properly responded to, all of those are issues that were specifically raised 
by the rail unions in the lead up to a potential rail strike as to why the years of negotiations have failed and why they needed to be able to use their labor power and withholding it from the rail companies in order to force them to make changes like this that are not only important for the rail workers themselves, but clearly for all of the inhabitants of the United States who are near freight lines, which is basically all of us. And yet, faced with that, President Biden saw that and said, nah, fuck it. Fuck you guys. You aren't allowed to strike. You have to take this contract that I told you was good enough, even though you all said it wasn't, and you have to accept it. And this is the result. Yeah. And uh, yeah, on top of that, they're also basically telling every community in the United States, also, your water table could just be destroyed at any moment, and you're just going to have to deal with that. Well, and yeah. not only that, a ton of the t- the town in East Palestine's, uh, you know, in East Palestine, their animals have died. Pets, yeah. chickens, mm-hmm. fish. I mean, like, there has been so much airborne toxic exposure that animals cannot even survive. And what yeah. is the, the company's response? They offered the town $25,000 for the 5,000 evacuated residents, which is literally $5 per person. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And in addition to that, like, it, to the problems with, like, the understaffing and all these other issues, specifically... The unions have been pushing for years for regulations that would that would force the rail carriers to put more advanced braking systems on their trains, specifically like an electronic braking system that can actually start braking at all the cars at the same time, as opposed to the air brake system that exists now, which where like the braking happens sequentially. So it takes longer to engage all of the brakes on the train at the same time. And, and yet consistently the government with all of the politicians who are in the pockets of the railroads have refused to pass such regulations. There was temporarily after a previous major derailment in the Obama administration, there was a new rule that was going to be put into place to force carriers to actually upgrade the brakes on their train that was killed under the Trump administration. And yet Pete Buttigieg, our secretary of transportation has already said that the government has no plans to bring that, that rule back into place. They just don't give a shit. <laughs> and uh, so, like, there was a Railroad Workers United, of course, has been all over this. Uh, they, they responded and just uh, as a, a clip from their excellent, very, like, much longer and more exhaustive examination of the causes of this. They said, quote, there is no way in the 21st century, save from a combination of incompetence and disregard to public safety, that such a defect should still be threatening our communities. The short-term profit imperative, the so-called cult of the operating ratio of Norfolk Southern and other class one railroads has made cutting costs, employees, procedures, and resources the top priority. In this case, Norfolk Southern and the other carriers have eliminated many of the critical mechanical positions and locations necessary to guarantee protection against these kinds of failures, end quote. Yeah, and I mean, I I think it's, especially for people in the area there, it's not like confusing as to why this happened. I mean, I've seen videos of people from that area who are very who know very clearly that this is because it's profitable to do it this way. It's a lot cheaper to disregard safety, to disrespect workers, to leave these communities with no protections and no compensation in the case of a disaster, no actual way of of or no actual like 
uh, concerted effort to clean up this process, that is a product of capitalism. And Mm -hmm. no matter what, even though, you know, people may be like, oh, no, I mean, capitalism sucks sometimes, but it's not. Like, people know exactly that that is the problem here. It's not. It's it's not some sort of unknown factor. And I think that, I mean, maybe I'm not uh, making a, a super coherent point here, but people know that capitalism is bad. And this is a really great example. Yeah, and it's just been so frustrating to see this just completely blown off by the media. And and it and this is one of those issues that is admittedly going to be very difficult to cover because like, and it's one of the things that I think sometimes make makes it hard for people to appreciate the dangers of something like COVID because the release of these chemicals, like a lot of the really detrimental effects, like some people have, have done good reporting on the deaths of, of a lot of animals in the area, but a lot of the effects that humans are going to feel from these like higher cancer rates and all of the other things, we're not going to see those for a while because that sort of thing takes a long time to happen. And during that period, you have the companies just coming out here like, nope, we came in, we quickly came, we cleaned up and we got everything moving right along now. And then so five, 10 years from now, when higher cancer rates start happening, then they can just come in and sow doubt and just say, hey, lots of things cause cancer. How do you know it was this? That was years ago. You have no way to connect it to this. You're just being hysterical. Well, and that's why there's a bunch of people pushing to have everybody get, like, health checkups now as mm -hmm. a baseline for future Mm -hmm. illness. Well, yeah, because, I mean, looking at the track record of the United States, for instance, Flint still does not Mm -hmm. have clean drinking water. Exactly. So, you know, uh, it's going to be rough going for the people of East Palestine, I'm afraid. Yeah, and potentially the the greater Ohio River watershed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Which, you know supplies water for millions of people but yeah i mean don't let people minimize this story like it's one of those things where it's not going to be obvious a lot of the effects right away but like (laughs) this is an incredibly bad chemical spill that our government is literally in the process of covering up alongside Mm -hmm. the railroads so uh it's really fucked up and i just feel like yet another example like if you want a good example to show people, honestly, you don't even have to talk about the long-term effects, but just the way that both po- uh, parties are completely in the pockets of corporations, right here. The the corporate press and the politicians are talking about fucking Chinese weather balloons. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have, you know, one of the bigger chemical spills that we've seen in years, and nobody gives a shit, so. Yeah. Well. Anyways. <sighs> I mean, I guess uh, if there is more on this, we'll try to keep people up to date in the Discord server unless, you know, there's something incredibly significant that will make it back into the show as a follow-up. But, you know, we will try to keep following this. Yeah, nationalize the fucking railroads. But to move to our next story, which is also a follow-up, we are going to be talking about the DHL workers of Rhode Island that Dan has spoken about a couple times. And, uh, you know, from... I guess you've been on the on the picket lines with these workers, so yeah. One, one of the rare it. stories where I got to do some actual journalism <laughs> of of actually participating in this strike. So, uh, for folks who have listened for a while, you'll be aware that there was a strike going on near me here in Rhode Island. But I'm just for some background for folks who may not have heard about it. So. Teamsters Local 251 here in Providence had been on strike at DHL in the just the next town over in Pawtucket for over eight months. 
They, they had originally gone out on strike back in June because the contractor who operated the DHL uh, like warehouse facility here, Northeast Transportation Services, had refused to negotiate with the workers on better health care for them that they were just like, you can just go out to the marketplace and get health care. What do I need to provide health care for you? And and then they just refuse to listen to any proposals to bring in like the Teamsters healthcare, which is significantly better than anything you're going to get on the ACA marketplace and a better deal. And just flat out said, no, you don't deserve healthcare. And even when, when pressed during negotiations on, look, if you're saying you can't afford it, just open up the books and show it to us. And then at the same time as refusing to do that, told them, oh yeah, no, we can afford it. We just don't think that you deserve it. So, wow. Classic. So yeah. Um, so anyway, that's why these workers went out on strike back in June. And they were out there in the hottest parts of the summer. And unfortunately, through the most of the coldest parts of the winter. And I had been going out and doing strike support each week with the Teamsters out on the picket line for my PSL branch. And that was a really, I mean, that was a really good experience for me. I got to meet a lot of really cool people who are out there on the line, have a lot of really great conversations with the workers out there, learning about the the awful situation that they were in and the way that the Teamsters are fighting back and all of the uh, resources that they were able to get, you know, from having a national organization that is a lot more militant than it used to be in the Teamsters, which is really great. Uh, and so just as a like as the strike went on it actually started to get more antagonistic the company brought in uh, armed security guards to harass people they of course immediately brought in scabs and the scabs were immediately like violent with the picketers there was a hit and run incident by one of the scabs which was then blamed by the police on the person who was hit by the car uh, which that sucked. And uh, then after they had been on strike for a few months, the governor came down to the, the strike line to do a photo op and talk about how much he supported the strikers. Uh, then literally immediately after the governor left, the police chose to attack the picket line, pepper spraying mm. the workers and, you know, hitting them and arresting several of them for no reason uh, and and charging several of them uh, fabricated, you know, to the sort of disorderly conduct bullshit that the police just throw out there whenever they don't have a real charge because you didn't actually break the law. So, uh, and actually, and so like uh, there was a, a recent article written about this strike by the TDU, which was actually really cool. And when one of the strikers who had been arrested during that attack on the picket line by the police, Tiffany Thompson, who spent three days in jail for sp- sticking up for her comrades, she told the TDU convention back in October, quote, being in a union means that someone always has your back. It's amazing to be part of something that's trying to change the world for working people, end quote. And that was really the spirit that I feel like was really embodied on the line all the time. Because, you know, I, I, I tried to do a little bit of consciousness raising with my conversations, but I never wanted to be pushy. And, you know, people have very different levels of consciousness. But solidarity was something that there was never any disagreement on. Like, uh, the, the people, they may have different political beliefs, and but... You know, when they're on the line, things became a lot clearer. And, you know, when the police attacked them, it became a lot easier to have conversations about, like, you know, it seems like kind of bullshit that it's always the cops attacking you guys and never the scabs who are actually the ones who have been violent. And also the fact that there's a cop detail on a line immediately when a strike begins all day 
despite the fact that there had been no violence by any of the strikers. So mm-hmm. that we had a lot, a lot of really good conversations with folks uh, based on that. And so the reason we're talking about this again is that after eight months, the strike has finally ended. And not only did the workers beat the boss after eight months, they ran them out of the state. <laughs> Uh, so Northeast Transportation Services, that contractor that had been running the DHL facility in Pawtucket, uh, it turns out that they had been illegally paying their scabs under the table and misclassifying them as contractors and thus refusing to pay workers' comp fees to the state. Uh, so they got hit with, I believe, a tax evasion charge for that, <laughs> uh, yeah. which the government doesn't like it when you, you evade those taxes. That's like um, the only thing you can get taken down for. Isn't yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, and so ultimately there was a settlement where basically the the company paid a fine for not paying those those workers comp taxes but had to agree that they were going to leave the state. So the the I was just so pumped that because like this contractor had just been the shittiest people, the most intransigent and spiteful group. Like it had been clear immediately during the strike that the scabs that they hired couldn't even come close to doing the level of work. They were constantly falling behind compared to what the actual workers who knew what they were doing were able to do. They constantly had to like basically take whole truckloads of packages over to the post office to have them deliver it because they just couldn't handle it with the scabs. And yet still they dug their heels in and refused to negotiate because they, they just were like, Nope, we want control. We will not cede anything to the union whatsoever. And, you know, now they don't have to settle a new contract with the union because they're not in the fucking state anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, after that happened, the and, and some discussions between DHL corporate and, 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 and some, you know, examination of the law by the, the union lawyers, the, wor- the workers agreed to go back to work because there was a, a worry that if they were still out on strike when DHL brought in a new contractor, the new contractor would be able to argue, hey, this is a new, we don't have a contract with them. Right. They're not currently working. So if they want a new contract, they're going to have to go through another election. And so strategically to avoid that, they came back to work, and just this past week, they overwhelmingly ratified a new contract, which includes affordable Teamster health care, big wage raises, more holidays, more paid time off, stronger overtime language, and stronger job protections. And Hell I'm just, yeah. like, su- super proud of all of the, the DHL workers and Teamsters Local 251 who I, I got to meet during this. Like, they were out there on the line every fucking day in awful, awful weather, dealing with harassment, police brutality, the refusal of the local media to cover the strike except for the occasional politician photo op. And they held firm alongside each other. They never broke the strike. And even though it took eight months, they won. They got by far the best contract that they've ever gotten. So I just, you know, I wanted to say hats off to the the workers of Teamsters Local 251. And if you need a good example that even if it's hard sometimes, strikes work, I think they are a great example of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, eight months is an astonishing amount of time to be out there. But yeah, I mean, kudos to them for sticking to it and getting what they were after. Yeah. Well, and then in our next story, we're going to be doing another follow-up on HarperCollins, the mega publisher, and the work, their workers had been on strike for a bit, a bit over two months, 66 days, and they finally reached a new ten- tentative agreement and agreed to return to work. 
The new three-year deal was reached uh, with the help of a federal mediator and the 250 members of UAW Local 2110. Uh, They still need to vote on the deal and make sure to ratify it, uh, but that will be coming shortly. Workers had originally struck for the basic demand that the job at HarperCollins should pay enough for workers to live on. Imagine that, uh, a job (laughs) where you could live because of your job. Uh, A truly (laughs) radical demand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and despite these modest demands of simply raising minimum salaries uh, from $45,000 to $50,000, not a huge ask, HarperCollins spent two months basically, basically refusing to even negotiate with the workers at all. Now, the TA details are, you know, as we have with very with a lot of different contracts that come out with just TAs, we're kind of going based on kind of generalized statements, and so the details are not quite there. But uh, it says that the workers across the company will see minimum salary salary raises in addition to a one-time fifteen hundred dollar bonus. Uh, the strike has already had effect even outside HarperCollins, as reported by the New York Times. During the strike, competitors McMillan and and oh McMillan and Hatch announced that they were raising minimum salaries. No, they're uh, they're two companies, McMillan oh. and Hatch. Oh. oh, it sounded like a fucking. Uh, like a I, I realized firm. that like right as we got to the <laughs> sentence, I was like, oh, that actually look, makes it look like it's one company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so, yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> so the company, the, the two companies, McMillan and Hatchet, uh, had announced that they were raising their minimum salaries to forty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. And considering both companies settled on the same figure, it seems possible that that's what the HarperCollins people are going to be doing, which also sounds to me like a business racket. And that's what we've been talking about in the fucking (laughs) uh, Unions and the Mob for Reputation versus Reality series. You learn more about that by becoming a patron. (laughs) That's like the big thing is like all, if you're in a particular industry and you run a business, it's very, very common to just look up what the prevailing like floor wage is for any given employee and just simply match that because like it's kind of an unspoken bond between business owners that they don't want employees to be able to leverage salaries against other job offers. That's kind of a thing of the past. Mm. Yeah, because you know, you you always hear you know from the capitalists how much they love competition. Mm-hmm. We we it's great competition. You know, it 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 makes everything more efficient. But businesses don't like competition at all. They hate competition. They want to eliminate it entirely. So there, yeah, there's a, especially in these very heavily monopolized industries like publishing, which really only has four or five big companies mm-hmm. that dominate like really the global trade. So it's it's very, very common for these heavily monopolized industries to have this sort of yeah, unofficial wage fixing where it's like, oh, crap, this company is being struck by their workers and they're forced to like raise their wage to 47,500. And so there will be a lot of like, okay, well, we don't want to strike and we don't want our workers to start thinking they need a union. Mm-hmm. So let's just tell them how great we are by raising our minimum salary to that amount, which is, of course, why we always want to emphasize that, for instance, at Starbucks is, I think, one of the best examples of this. When you see, after the Starbucks Workers United movement starting, Starbucks coming out and giving multiple raises since then to all workers, new benefits and all these other things, 
It's the union that won mm-hmm. those. The company didn't give those things to the workers of its own volition. Those were won by the union, even if those stores were not union at the time. Yeah, well, and it's like, you know, I work in a pretty weird industry and for like a little regional vending company. But when I was looking at other vending jobs, they all mysteriously paid pretty much exactly the same amount of money <laughs> that my current job pays. And it's like, oh, I wonder why that could fucking be. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I mean, we, we'll see how this is going to play out because uh, one of the things that when I was researching this, trying to find details, there really aren't m- many available because it's still in the tentative agreement state. Uh, but this, is, I, I think one of the things that maybe contributed to why maybe the workers didn't weren't able to quite force through the 50,000 if that's true maybe it's not you know we'll see is that uh harper collins has actually seen uh dropping revenues uh lately it's still an incredibly rich company can could afford way more than the 50k floor to be clear but they will of course be justifying their intransigence in the negotiating room by saying like look we got bad revenues like news corp the you know, Rupert Murdoch's giant right-wing media empire, which owns HarperCollins, has recently announced plans to, to cut 5% of HarperCollins' workforce in order to cut costs. So in addition to striking to get better wages so they can actually afford to live in New York City and work for this publisher, the workers now are going to be, uh, in addition, having to fight to make sure that they are able to protect all of their jobs from these looming cuts from News Corp. So solidarity with all the workers at HarperCollins, incredible work staying out there for 66 days. And it's 66 days of like the coldest weather in Mm -hmm. New York. So uh, not not exactly a cakewalk out on the picket line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving into our next story, we're going to be taking a little bit of a thousand foot view and doing Mm -hmm. some hardcore data analysis. So I hope you're buckled up for that. Uh, This is something we've been meaning to talk about, but there's just so much fucking uh, labor news happening. We felt like this could wait. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics did release their their 2022 union numbers a few weeks ago. And the data that we saw shows that unions are on the rise as we could tell you on this show, but that the overall percentage of union workers has decreased at the same time due to the number of newly added jobs. Our politicians always bragging about how many jobs they added to the economy and never about the quality of those jobs, interestingly. Mm Uh, So we saw 273,000 workers who joined unions in 2022, which is the largest increase in decades. The number of new jobs added to the U.S. economy in 2022 was actually around 5.3 million, which is kind of a mind-blowing number, uh, considering there's only about 360 or 70 million Americans somewhere around there. And uh, these numbers reflect why overall union density has gone from 10.3% to 10.1%, which does mark a historic low, despite the amount of union activity that we are so privileged to report on every single week on this show. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of these weird cases where it's like, which makes this kind of difficult to frame because mm -hmm. there is a big upsurge in union energy going on. There is a big upsurge in union organizing and strikes. And yet at the same time, the scale has not been large enough to counteract the growth in non-union jobs that's been happening at the same time. And, and, and to kind of, we've got kind of a bit of a breakdown here because of course 
the unionization efforts are not even across every sector. It's mm-hmm. actually very uneven. And so just to just to give folks a bit of a, a snapshot picture of where the labor movement is at right now is that about 193,000 of those 273,000, so the, the bulk, were in the private sector, though these new union members, uh, which is you'd expect since the U.S., the private sector is by far the vast majority of jobs. And the Highest unionization rates in the private sector are in the areas of utilities, with 19.6% of workers unionized. Uh, sound engineering and movie work, this is, of course, mm. largely under IATSE, uh, 17.3% of that industry is unionized. And then logistics, warehouse, transportation, and commercial aviation, so most, lar- again, largely the Teamsters, but also, you know, RWDSU and a few other unions, in at 14.5%, and I have to imagine UPS is a very big part of that percentage, with oh, its 300,000 workers. Yeah, and then, the, you know, the public sector still is, like, the most unionized sector compared to the private sector, where about 33.1% of public sector jobs are union, uh, but that keeps dropping, and a lot of the public sector unions uh, have been kind of hesitant to actually invest in more organizing, and uh, which is which is one of the reasons why it also continues to keep dropping. I mean, since 2000, only eight states have actually gained union membership, and uh, the three highest were all on the West Coast, be uh, between them, California, with uh, Washington and Oregon, uh, have added 623,000 new union members over that period. As most of the rest of the country had seen declines, New York and Hawaii remain the two states with the highest union densities, however, both still over 20% of their workers, which I thought was a pretty interesting fact. Yeah. Yeah. New. I mean, New York has always been, like, one of the most heavily union states in the country, and I don't really know what it is in Hawaii. Uh, I think maybe it's maybe it's, it's the tourism industry with with Unite Here. Okay. Yeah, it's either that or s- the unceded te- uh, indigenous territory. You know, f- being like you know an actual point of struggle. Uh, maybe. Yeah, well, I was going to say know. it's particularly interesting because I know a disproportionate amount of Hawaiian citizens work for the U.S. military, and I know they're not unionized. So <laughs> yeah. So uh, and. and- one of the things that a lot of people have pointed out is uh, uh, talking about the, the surge in union popularity. Cause this is the angle that you'll see a lot of the like left liberal uh, line take where they say, look, there's clearly a lot of enthusiasm for unions, but people can't join unions, all of which is true. Uh, they, you know, they, they point out that 60 million workers say they would join a union if they could, according to the Economic Policy Institute, and that there's currently a 70% approval rating for unions, again, the highest in, I think, like 50-plus years. Uh, but despite all that, we only added 273,000 new union jobs. And so where a lot of the liberal publications look to at that is this is because U.S. labor law is so stacked against workers. This is, again, another place that that's not wrong. It's extremely true, as we mm-hmm. talk about on the show all the time. And so a lot of this energy tends to coalesce around, and that's why we need to pass the PRO Act, because we'll pass the PRO Act, and that'll solve these disparities in labor law. And I don't want to sound too shitty about this, because we 100% support the passage of the PRO Act. We think that'd be great, and we do think that it would contribute to this. But that 
to focus so intently on the pro act, I really think misses the core problem here, especially because it implies that the way that the workers can fix the labor movement is with the help of the state. Mm -hmm. And that's just not really how these things usually go. I mean, we say so often on this show, please stop trying to turn to the Democrats, right? Just a black hole that you're throwing your fucking money and time into. And I, you know, I don't even have to say anything about the Republicans. You already know. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, Jane McAlevey, who's certainly no communist, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, she was interviewed by In These Times. She's, by the way, if you, if you weren't aware, if she's, you listened yeah, to she's our- a communist sympathizer, though. You know, she's, <laughs> she said some nice things about them in the book. Uh, no shortcuts. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if, if folks haven't listened to our, our, our episode discussing her book, No Shortcuts, definitely uh, sign up for the Patreon and check it out. That's the um, uh, Saul Alinsky episode. That's right. But Jane McAlevey is, you know, longtime labor expert. She's a senior fellow at the Labor Center at UC Berkeley. And she was interviewed by In These Times about this and specifically on the the issue of the PRO Act. She said, quote, it's a lack of ambition and it's risk aversion, but fundamentally it's a lack of faith in workers. We're relying on the Democrats and Congress to change labor law. Come on. When we do that, it's a cop out and it's an excuse. We're not in control of that how we run campaigns, and how we negotiate contracts, that's what we're in control of. End quote. Damn, that's fucking materialist as hell. I love it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then for some more stats on some of the, the angles that I think Jane McAlevey and we would point to as more of the, the core of the problem here and, and where we can affect things is how the unions, the major unions, the SEIU, the big unions in the AFL, even the Teamsters, UAW, all, the, all, these, all these big unions, that there hasn't been that investment in organizing new workers that might actually turn some of these trends around. So specifically on this point, Chris Bonner of Radish Research pointed out on Twitter that over the last decade, while we've seen a slow, steady decline in union density, union assets have more than doubled from $14 billion to $32 billion. But at the same time, spending by the unions has only increased 18%, which is actually less than inflation during mm-hmm. that time. So when you, when you actually calibrate it for the value of money, the major unions are spending, as an average, less on new organizing now than they were a decade ago when we didn't have this you know, big enthusiasm about forming unions. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like as the public and as the worker base has caught up with the enthusiasm, it's it's after, you know, it's on the tail end of decades of it actually dying out among the administration of many unions. And you know, maybe that's also kind of the cause of it. Like maybe, you know, as that enthusiasm vacated, people started realizing like, hey, you know, maybe maybe this is up to us. Maybe that's like the the pressure that created movements like Starbucks Workers United, which are unionizing an industry that everybody used to say like was ununionizable or something. Right. Right. Well, that and the heightened contradictions of things like the COVID pandemic and the continuing sure. crises right, right. that we're facing. But yeah, and this whole thing came alongside uh, a little bit of reporting about a big anti-union, uh, like basically a union buster conference where they were, uh, you know, getting together and lamenting the the great 
uh, you know, surge in worker organizing. And uh, some of the stuff out of this is pretty funny, actually. Like, they're they're shaken. They the these fucking union busters are are not excited about worker power. <laughs> yeah. So this this is coming out of an article from uh Lever News which is like I don't know if it's run by David Sirota but like he's a one of the big contributors there. Mm-hmm. It used to be called what the Daily Poster. They changed oh, their name it? just like a year or two ago. I know because okay. I interviewed with them and they didn't give me the job. Oh, dang. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this article's good, despite them mistreating Lena. That's right. And missing out. um, Where they basically are are talking about this, which I still don't understand why they did this. So there's this union buster conference where you've got like Jackson Lewis and and Littler Mendelssohn and, you know, all the various ghouls and, and goblins out there. And like... They decide to invite Jennifer Bruzo, the general counsel to the NLRB, who has been extremely vocal about actually being pro-union, to speak at their event. <laughs> I think they were hoping to influence her, but you know, I don't think that she's very easily swayed by these union busters. Yeah, and and so there's some just really gold quotes of of, of some of the union busters complaining about the current. Uh, climate around unions. For instance, one Jackson Lewis union buster, Laura Pearson Scheinberg, was quoted as saying, uh, talking about how the press is reporting more on unions, saying, and guess who's reading it? My kids. Literally, I have an 18-year-old. My kids are into it. Before, I used to say, unionization isn't a problem for you in the restaurant industry. But kids don't care about paying union dues two percent of pay are you kidding me their netflix costs more they think it's a hell of a deal (laughs) i I, I love that her brain can only understand uh being interested in union dues if she's like it's like a subscription service okay i can wrap my head around that (laughs) it's like amazon prime that's good okay Yeah, the rest of this is uh, really fucking gold, though. So uh, go go on with the story. Well, so she could she continued the story about her son and and told what what she, what she found is to be a very amusing anecdote. And I don't think quite understanding that like because it's funny when you read this, the way that it's characterized is like, oh, kids these days they're just getting bound up in the latest fad <laughs> talking about unions. Aren't kids ridiculous? And and so it's they're clearly not taking it seriously. But so she told this story where at her son's school, he was basically, it's basically you're supposed to bring in an outside speaker kind of along the lines of like, bring your parent to work to tell them about their job mm-hmm. sort of dealy. Uh, and and she, she explained it saying, quote, he goes, mom, I really think you would be cool. And I know you do this everywhere. It would be really cool of you to come in, but you're a union buster. So it can't be you. I said to him, union busting? I I don't union bust. I focus on positive employee relations. (laughs) My Uh, I don't union bust shirt has people asking. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm sure that ruining relationships and work environments and people's livelihoods, causing tons of retaliation and immiserating tons of working people is just positive employee relations. You know, fuck off. Yeah, well, and it's also, it's so weird to see the people, like, applying their ideological, you know, techniques to their own kids. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, 
Like, look, I, you don't believe you're not a union buster. You know you're a union buster. You just think unions are bad. So I'm like, like, so admit that. Like, oh, you're just about your. I, I telling your kids, I focus on positive employee relations. I don't. I mean, I don't feel like you're building a very positive family environment by lying to your kid like that mm-hmm. all the time. But yeah. yeah, I mean, and so the 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 whole rest of the conference is kind of like that. They talked about you know their standard union busting techniques of trying to co op social justice movements, talking about how unionization is not about wages and that that it's it's really about respect and 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 social issues. And so the the they're going to try and use things like how REI did the whole woke anti union podcast with a land acknowledgement on it. And all this it is really gross, insincere shit, like applying it to actual real issues like indigenous rights and labor rights. Um, yeah, I can't count the number of times I scroll past articles that are like, you know, it's not about wages. It's definitely just like a bad manager. You know, this is yeah. how you lose respect from workers. They started applying immediately after they weren't respected for calling in sick. You know, like... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's like those articles that are like, new study shows employees want pizza more than they want raises. And I'm like, was the study you just called a bunch of bosses and asked them what they thought? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh. yeah, I mean, anyway, just to, to kind of sum it up, like, the, the momentum in the union movement is real, but we need the major unions to step up and take the resources that they have and actually apply them and seize the moment that we're in right now. And really, cause we, we could be bringing as horrible as us labor law is. And we talk about that all the time on the show. If the major unions were willing to spend the money and really, really, really put their efforts into it, we could add millions of new workers. It mm-hmm. would still be hard. And there's still plenty of people who would want to join a union who would be fucked over by labor laws. For sure. This isn't going to fix everything. But kind of as Jane McAlevey pointed to, we can only impact the things that workers can impact. And trying to think that we're going to use the capitalist state to fix this is a fool's errand that a lot of the business unionists have been betting on and losing for the past 60 years. So mm-hmm. I think it's time that we try something that we can actually affect and which might actually work. Yeah, and to end it with just a tiny little anecdote, I got a random call from a co-worker at the place where we had unionized and then you know we got decertified because of the intense union busting campaign. And, uh, you know, they had this issue where they changed the commission system and now it's even harder to make commission. And my ex-coworker says kind of like jokingly, he's like, oh, I was talking to this other, my other coworker, and they both had worked there at the time and said, oh, we should have just let the union have it. And I just said, no shit. Like these people <laughs> who actually were, who were part of the concerted effort to undermine the union that did actually get undermined are now regretting it like that it should at least show a little bit of the change in consciousness and the possibility of maintaining and building strong unions. Hell yeah. Well, speaking of building strong unions, we've got the workers fighting for the Mexican independent union movement are continuing to rack up wins. So we've, we've covered this a few times, mostly from the excellent reporting at labor notes. And once again, This is from some more reporting from Labor Notes, who continue to be like the one source that I can find in English reporting on what's going on in the Mexican labor movement. So uh, Labor Notes continues to be a fantastic source. So this new story, we are going to be talking about workers at a auto glass factory, uh, the the French giant Saint-Gobain, who 
have a plant in Kwautla, I believe, is almost certainly not the right way to pronounce that. I apologize. This is a, a city in, it was listed as a southern city, but it seemed more like central Mexico. Uh, but this is yet another factory, just like so many that we've previously talked about, that was dominated by a union that was essentially a company union. Mm-hmm. For the entire time. They were often referred to as protection unions, but in function, I think we can think of them a lot like company unions, where at that plant, from the day that it opened in 1996, workers there had been represented by the Confederation of Workers and Peasants, the CTC. But in line with so many of the other places that we've seen when there was a recent change to Mexican labor law a few years ago, giving workers the opportunity to vote on whether they wanted to keep their current representation or go to a new union. After an incident at the plant where a 21-year veteran worker, Gabriel Mendoza, was fired for standing up for his coworkers without any support from the union, workers who had been pushing for change for months we're finally galvanized to just take the open fight and say, look, we've been trying to make this union work for years Mm -hmm. and it's clearly not going to, it's clearly a company union. It's clearly in the pockets of the bosses. So we got to just forge our own path and, and build our own independent union. Yeah. Well, these workers were up against a union, which defended the company when it committed wage theft against their workers, which is like, that's about as blatant as it fucking gets. And, and we heard from Yvette Diaz Lopez, which is one of Mendoza's coworkers who said, quote, for eight months, I constantly had to fight with my employers. So they'd pay me my entire paycheck. If I worked overtime, they'd pay me the regular rate. If I worked a holiday, they'd say I didn't work that day. I told them my labor isn't free, but the CTC was more focused on defending the employer than the workers, which to me, that is a textbook description of an HR department. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's like HR department, company union, protection union. These are all the same picture. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, so seeing others stand up against the company union help encouraged more workers who had had similar complaints but had never really felt that they could express them finally have the courage to join together with the rest of their dissatisfied coworkers and form an independent union, even though not only did they get, you know, your standard verbal opposition from the CTC, like, no, we've been representing you for all this time. The best thing to do is work through the union. Uh, they also just started straight up violent intimidation from goons. Uh, not that, so these are the, not the cool kind of union thugs, Mm-hmm. which we openly advocate for, the bad kind, which is the company union kind. Right. And so even after the CTC lost their vote and were replaced by the workers' new organization, the Independent Union of Free and Democratic Workers of San Goban, Mexico, the, the CTC continued to attack the workers. Like uh, Ramon Martinez, a worker organizer, said that the CTC goons threatened to disappear her if she didn't stop organizing. And that's the sort of thing, if you hear that here in the U.S., somebody's like, I'm going to make you disappear. You might be like, oh, that's that's kind of a, like, old-timey thing to say. In Mexico, that carries a lot of weight behind it because a lot of these company unions like the CTM and the CTC have been known for years for their violence against any sort of dissident. So, like, that's the sort of thing that folks had to take seriously. Thankfully, 
um, you know, these workers were able to have their vote and they were able to elect their new union. <laughs> they, but they even had to have like the National Guard was called out to provide security during the election because of the CTC's history of violence. That's ridiculous. Absolutely un- unbelievable. Yeah, like it's hard enough to go around to your coworkers and be like, you know, the boss is kind of fucking us over. Like, mm-hmm. I think if we get together, you know, it's going to be hard to stand up to the boss, but if we come together, like, we can get a better deal. That's a really difficult thing to do, as we talk about all the time. But doing that in the face of violent threats from an organization that's claiming to be your own union, mm-hmm. like, that's a lot. So, like, that's a big part of the reason, like, I always want to highlight these stories, because the difficulty that these independent union workers are fighting for that they have to overcome is enormous. And yet we're seeing the energy there because, you know, once again, workers know when they're being screwed over and, and when they're given the opportunity to organize against it, they seize it just like here where now the workers at Senko Ben are working to win a better contract now that they have an independent organization. And one of the things that I loved, they talked about, they don't even have the new contract yet, but in their, Founding bylaws right in the Constitution, one of the things that they put in there was that the bargaining committee for any contract has to have gender equality. It has to be evenly split, 50-50, men and women. And that rocks. Like I'm like, hey, uh, other unions, here's a thing to copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so rare that that there's actual, like... <laughs> equitable forms or even just making sure that like some of the lowest paid workers are mm-hmm. made are brought into these uh negotiations and making sure that their voices are heard when we have po- pointed out so often that when you raise up the lowest level workers and center their demands your struggle becomes a lot stronger because those people are the ones who will fight the hardest yeah but let me raise the objections okay okay that if you <laughs> if you center women or other marginalized voices you're bringing politics into it and when, <laughs> and, and, when, and when listen to me listen to me when you prioritize the lowest paid workers that's communism <laughs> that's, that's right. right it is communism <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, one of the other things that they've done that's really great, and, and this, of course, happens in many unions with the, the shop steward system, but one of the fir- I love that, you know, it's one of the big first priorities for this new union is setting up a structure similar, again, to the shop steward system where there's direct lines of communication between the bargaining committee and union leadership and the workers on the shop floor. Like, even to the point where, you know, you have, like, the new union general secretary just giving contact information to workers on the shop floor. Like, look, when you see big issues we need to bargain over, let us know. Like, because, you know, we want to be in touch with what are the key issues that all the workers are facing so that we can prioritize what the actual workers' priorities are. So yeah. hell yeah. You know, and it's one of those things where you, you think of like, well, of course, that's what a union should be doing, and I agree. But again, these workers for 20, for like, uh, what now? Almost 30 years at this point, wildly, have not had a union that's doing that. So it's been a complete transformation. And now that they're fighting for their new contract, they've also reached out to other nearby plants in the area to urge them to organize their own independent unions and get out from the thumb of the company and their company bosses. They're like company union goons too. Like, so as the new union's general secretary, Joaquin Guzman told labor notes, quote, it's been proven time and time again, that power comes from workers. So don't be afraid to make the change. End quote. Nice. Absolutely. 
I, you know, I loved it because it's, again, this is one of those things that I really love about the energy that we've seen from pretty much, this is very similar to all the other stories we've reported on from the independent union movement in Mexico, where the solidarity, like all that energy isn't stopping at that plant. Every one of them is just like, we can do this everywhere. Every, you know, every worker deserves a real union that's going to fight for them. And so in line with that, while these workers are gearing up for their fight, one of the other plants that unionized that we previously talked about, this is a VU manufacturing plant in Piedras Negras, who won a new independent union back in August. They are now gearing up for a strike because in response to them getting a new union that will actually fight for them, VU manufacturing is like, oh, wait, we're going to have to actually pay you guys now? Well, we don't want to deal with that. <laughs> so they've illegally furloughed many workers on temporary layoffs. Mm. Uh, this is a system where like they weren't legally allowed to fully lay the workers off. So they're using what they're allowed to do within the legal system. But that, you know, is awful for these workers because they're losing the paychecks that they need to to cover their basic expenses. And so in response to that, workers will begin a strike next Monday, February 20th. And they are at, they've appealed to the broader working class in both Mexico and the United States for help fundraising for their strike fund. So I've got a link for that and we will definitely include it in the show notes. And, you know, we encourage, of course, as always, anybody who has a little bit of extra money, anything you can throw for those folks is going to go a really long way. And, you know, this is a really, really good movement to support because helping workers in Mexico helps workers in the U S just like helping workers in anywhere else that is affected by U S imperialism helps workers here. So. Absolutely. Very important. Very, very important. And then, uh, in our next story, we're going to be kind of talking, we're going to be talking about Starbucks and we have not included them in the notes recently, but you know, there's just been, we kind of have been building up what's been going on, but we're going to start talk a little bit, about fired Starbucks workers and uh, what they have been going through. And basically, which I, I was going to say, maybe you'd be surprised about this, but I actually don't <laughs> think you will. That They're actually forcing workers to work while sick with COVID and then reprimanding them for doing so. Yeah. It's... Really not great. I mean, yeah. it's it's completely in line with everything that Starbucks has been doing, but it, this shit is, it's just so frustrating to see this over and over and over again. Like, uh, so this is coming out of a report in Vice where the NLRB ruled last week that Starbucks illegally fired Georgia worker Ben Scott after he tweeted about being asked to come to work after testing positive for COVID. Also, right. firing people for what they post on Twitter is should be illegal. I know it's not. But it is technically, but the uh, actual enforceability of it, I think, is really the the problem there. Because, right. right. Well, but anyway, uh, I mean, back in June, uh, Scott's store in Atlanta, in an, in an Atlanta suburb, was actually one of the few stores that had voted against unionizing. But uh, immediately following the election, he had tested positive for COVID and moved to isolate for the five days per the company's policy, even though nine days is basically what is safer. And even then, it should be contingent on a test. And even though he had tested positive uh, and continued to, he was told to, uh, you know, come in anyway. Um, right, which was the express purpose of that CDC 
uh, guideline that they released to allow companies to force people back into work ASAP. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, this, I, I'm struggling here because of how ridiculous it is that you could literally have a positive COVID test and be told to come into work. Although I'm not surprised because I have worked at Starbucks and they will tell you to come in no matter what. And that you, mm-hmm. if you can't find someone to cover for you, that you are going to get one of your three, uh, you know, reprimands for that. Yeah. Well, and this is corroborated by what uh, Scott said about what uh, their manager said, uh, which is we hear from Ben Scott here. He says, quote, the manager said that Starbucks policy is five days and that I was required to come back to my shift the next day, even though I was still testing positive. So I let the other employees know and they were rightfully upset that I was getting told to come in, even though I'm positive. And then after he then tweeted about the incident, largely to let customers know about the unsafe work environment they'd be coming into, he was informed that he had to contact Starbucks HR and then was subsequently fired three weeks later. In the paperwork that Scott received, Starbucks lied and claimed that he included the address of the store and invited the public to visit him at this store location while COVID-19 positive, which is and I can't st- stress this enough, the express opposite <laughs> of mm-hmm. what was happening. That is, I mean, I know dishonesty from Starbucks is like, you know, something that we talk about literally close to every episode on this show. But like, that's all you have to do is look at the tweet to know that's a lie. Yeah. Well, uh, on the 1st of February, the NLRB did rule that this was illegal retaliation and that uh, Scott's speech was protected and concerted activity discussing a workplace safety hazard. Obvious to us, and probably also Starbucks, but they don't actually care. Um, the board also cited the company for holding illegal captive audience meetings and threatening that if workers voted for the union, they wouldn't get any future raises. Honestly, interesting that there's point, no sentencing. <laughs> yeah, there, there really should be. Uh, there, they should be forced to, uh, you know, recognize the union there at the very yeah. least. And every place that has filed, and you know, maybe just auto unionize the whole fucking company because <laughs> they're not going to stop. They're just going to keep going. And speaking of keeping going with uh, exploitation and horrible practices, our next story out of Iowa talks about bringing back the good old days of little hands in looms and on Mm -hmm. kill floors, uh, basically legalizing child labor because nobody wants to work anymore. Drinking from the garden hose and shucking peas with grandma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're bringing we're bringing back all the stuff from the beginning of the 20th century that we thought we got rid of, folks. Uh, we're they're probably going to put in a new bill to put lead back in the gasoline because taking it out was woke. I don't even know at this point. <laughs> I'm going to die of dysentery on my way to Oregon. I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah. So. As I've said, like with the Federal Reserve's attempt to crush labor 
by jacking interest rates through the roof in order to force a recession and kick people out of work. Well, that hasn't worked so far. So we're still getting the, hey, how come the workers keep trying to unionize and thinking we should pay them more? This is bullshit from all of the the business owners. And so they have turned to that old standby where if you can't throw everybody out of work, what we need is more competition from people who won't be able to unionize or demand better wages. And what group better who aren't already being exploited than children. So this past week, lawmakers in Iowa introduced a new bill to allow teenagers to work jobs that had previously been deemed too dangerous or intensive for kids. And it is clearly the entire purpose of this is to suppress wages. That is 100% the reason there's a whole bunch of bullshit about, well, this is better for it. None of that matters. The purpose of this is to suppress wages. Always, and, because they don't, they don't believe in equal pay for equal work. They believe in paying you know, marginalized people less so that they can drive down wages overall and increase profits for capital. They believe in giving teenagers valuable underpaid experience in such uh, (laughs) blossoming industries as slaughterhouses, mines, heavy machinery operations, roofing, and demolition, which I got to tell you, when I was 16, I was barely fit to ride my bike around the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, like the rest of, pretty much the rest of the country, currently Iowa state law prohibits children from working in any of those industries Mm -hmm. because they're all very dangerous and you shouldn't have kids working in very dangerous industries. (laughs) But... The bill now creates openings to change all that. It also even allows 16-year-olds to serve alcohol and work until 11 p.m. and and drive themselves to and from their job. So, like, (laughs) the kid can drive to work at 16 and serve booze to a bunch of, like, drunk adults and then get arrested on the drive home because they, you know, might have... Uh, gotten some beer from like a friend mm-hmm. because we think that it's fine to have 16 year olds serving booze so that we can suppress the wages of bartenders but it's still illegal for 16 year olds to drink I mean I don't think it should be legal but just the <laughs> yeah. the comparison there yeah well and then also the idea that like they're gonna go work in a restaurant after school and do a dinner shift and murder their feet and knees and then like wake up and go to football practice before school or what it's just preposterous this is obviously and, also designed to take kids out of school oh a hundred percent and and those are just the least dangerous jobs mm-hmm. and 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 again, they talk about, oh, we're not changing, you know, we're not telling, like, you know, kids they have to go work at these places. But the way that it's fra- that the bill is actually framed is a complete get-out-of-jail-free card for the businesses to exploit these kids and run them into the ground and get away with it. The, the Basically, right now, it's illegal for kids to work any of those jobs. And the new bill provides a loophole that eliminates any prohibition on that labor as long as the kids are, quote, participating in work-based learning or a school or employer-administered work-related program. And as we all know, those are always administrated perfectly reasonably with no oversights and no lack of accountability. They're always just peachy. Uh... Yeah. And... They claim that the bill requires businesses to provide a safe environment and training for their child workers. I don't really understand where that claim comes from because it's just not true. There is no safe environment on a demolition site, P. 
period. Full stop. Yeah, or a slaughterhouse, or a mine, or an auto parts factory. Exactly. Or a fucking McDonald's kitchen. I can't count how many times I burnt myself in that fucking place as a kid. That's also true. Absolutely. You've seen all the memes about people like, put the ice in the fryer. And there's a reason there's memes about that. Big hot fryers are dangerous as shit. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Getting back to the lies of the Iowa politicians, despite them saying that, oh, no, it's this pro- these loopholes are fine. It's fine to let kids work in these environments because we're requiring that businesses make them safe. Again, there isn't even a part of this bill you can twist to say that because it, in fact, says the opposite. The, the bill actually provides a blanket exemption of any liability on the company's part if a student gets sick, injured, or even dies due to the company's negligence on the job. They are letting the businesses totally off the hook. All that's going to do, and which is the imperfect intent of this, is encourage businesses to try and hire kids for these dangerous jobs because they get a blanket get-out-of-jail-free card if anything happens to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and very similar to how there have been zero repercussions for, for COVID deaths, uh, except for it's not just, you know, the general population. It is children. Again, it's children. Yeah, and so we've got an absolutely bizarre quote from Jessica Dunker, who's the president and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association and, of course, one of the big boosters of this law, who is extremely excited about feeding the children of Iowa's working class into a meat grinder in order to make more money. Yeah, pro tip, Uh, if an organization ends in association, it's evil. <laughs> I feel like that might be too broad, but we'll go for it. For Name now. one. <laughs> I'll think of one, maybe. But, anyways, so in testifying about this bill, she claimed that this is an equity issue. And she said, quote, Privileged children who can afford to be in show choir and can be on the football team and can go to the prom and can go to the games, they get to drive there as long as they're on a path directly to and from the school. And yet kids who want to work at Culver's or anywhere else are not afforded the same privilege, end quote. I'm just, these, I just privileged, wanna... <laughs> these privileged kids get to have their cake and eat it too. And Ricky from down the lane can't even fry a burger? What are you talking about? <laughs> no, seriously. It's like normal childhood activities of community engagement and enrichment when it comes to arts and, and, acti- and like, you know, sports uh, are being compared to working for a wage in a kitchen. I'm going to tell you, I would not have worked at McDonald's had I not had to. I literally mm-hmm. was forced into working as a child. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because, like, the idea of working at Culver's being a privilege. Have you ever been to a Culver's? They run that place like a Presbyterian summer camp cult. It's a bunch of teenagers in blue outfits walking up, sir, and mamming you, even if you're 23 years old and obviously stoned. Nobody wants to do that job. Yeah. It, framing this as child labor laws are are tearing the rights away from kids who want to go get jobs is a demonic thing to phrase this yeah. as I, I don't have a non ableist <laughs> adjective to, to describe this other than that. It's like Ayn, it it's is, Ayn Rand brain is what it is. Yeah, it, it is. This rhetorical sleight of hand is the sort of thing that liberals eat up mm-hmm. and, 
because look, I know this is before the right wing uh, state government of of Iowa, so they're she's mostly preaching to the choir amongst the Republicans, but. There are the, the DNC types love this shit too because they're paid by the same companies. The National Restaurant Association, the national version of this, funds the Democrats just as much as it funds the Republicans. You know, like, grease burns are just character building, Dan. They're, that's what it is, right? That's what they think. Yeah, they they like, seriously think it's like character building to be in danger. Yeah, I mean, and, literally, the whole quote, all it's missing to be something Barack Obama could have said is, let me be clear <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But yeah, and just, it's like, as you said, Lena, it's like, the kids that are working at Culver's are not there because they're like, I'm looking for a great experience. <laughs> they're there because they have to, because mm-hmm. capitalism doesn't fucking work. And it doesn't provide the standard of living for working people that they can have their kids not work. It's every single one of the kids that works at a job like this is there because they have to be, because they have to have it in order to make money. And and, and phrasing it as a rights issue is just driving me up a wall. Like, these people are the reason that you need a revolution to clear out the, you know... I guess Deadwood as part of the capitalist state. It's it's completely fucked. And so like this and this bill, like this isn't just some, you know, oh, there's the the most far right person threw that in there knowing it wasn't gonna pass. Last Wednesday on February 8th, the bill cleared an Iowa Senate subcommittee and is moving towards a full vote. Like, despite the fact that to all observers, this bill will be horrific for Iowa's youth and will lead to plenty of lifetime injuries and even deaths that these companies are not liable for in any way and therefore not incentivized to prevent like it's still moving forward and the capitalists who own the state government will stop at nothing to crush the rising labor movement even if it means sacrificing some other people's children mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah I yeah you know if fuck Iowa uh, unexist to America well, well we're mad at the Iowa government not yeah the, yeah right right not Une- the, unexist not the to people. Iowa <laughs> <laughs> the, the the government and such you know yeah Any, anyway I'm just I'm just frustrated nationalized anyway. Culvers. all right well we've got two more stories that we're going to be covering in this episode both of which relate to the interview that we did last week so uh, become a patron to check that out but we have been talking a lot about the surge in unionization at universities and at Northeastern in Boston there are 1700 grad student workers that have begun their organizing with the UAW. Uh, That was last Monday that they had actually officially filed for state recognition of their union. Uh, Two days after that, the uh, university responded by announcing that they were going to give a raise to, oh, just the computer science section of the university, (laughs) which uh, the union pointed out is ridiculous. And that, Everybody needs a raise, not just computer sciences. Yeah, I mean, classic move to try and and, and quell union organizing by pitting one group of students or one group of workers, in this case, the same thing, against each other. Just, 
the most typical boss tactic ever. And thankfully, though, the union is calling that out directly. They they put out a a uh, a statement act afterwards calling it out as a pattern of behavior from the university that in 2019, not long after they initially announced that they were at the early stages of organizing, that the university issued similar very narrowly prescripted raises in order to try and kill the organizing drive and then tried to do the same thing last year during their card drive. Yeah. I mean, like that's what they're, they're trying to quell organizing by, you know, either pacifying the people who got the raises or by creating an adversarial relationship between the people who got the raises and who didn't. But it's also kind of telling that they picked the computer science department. They were like, Mm -hmm. what's the STEMiest field? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. Well, and the graduate employees of Northeastern University or or GNU, GNU, says that they're fighting for economic stability for graduate students and workers since or graduate student workers since they have a significant number of workers who struggle to get by in one of the most expensive areas in the United States. Uh, some other demands that they're putting forward are health care that includes dental and lower out of pockets cost lower out of pockets cost lower out of pocket costs citing uh, not only the ongoing issues with our healthcare system, but also the COVID pandemic. And like basically every other university in the country, they are uh, there are serious issues with harassment and discrimination, and the union is looking to get a grievance procedure going so that they can actually address these issues. It is almost like every single college is experiencing the exact same issues because we've almost directly reported on these exact issues before. And yeah. we will I mean, you see, again in the next story. <laughs> you see the you see the grievance procedure thing all the time, and I'm really really glad. And also, uh, as somebody who didn't have dental insurance until he got married, it is such an important thing to fight for. I had no idea. <laughs> it's so great to have good teeth. Everybody deserves it. Oh yeah, yeah. It it's so frustrating that in this country they're treated as luxury bones that it, you, you don't just deserve, you know, mm-hmm. to have healthcare, to keep your teeth. It's just like, if you make enough money, if you do work at a job that we deem deserves to keep the teeth, then yeah, you can have some insurance, but everybody else not nah, fuck you. Imagine like if you were like, Oh, I just got a job working at the DMV. Aren't you proud of me, dad? And your dad's like, wow, the DMV, that's a teeth job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're have no, teeth. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like today with pensions. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a hilarious sentiment. And like I was kind of alluding to in the next story, we kind of in the same vein of this one, the Harvard adjunct faculty have launched their union drive, which actually happened on the exact same day that Genu filed for their election. Uh, So researchers and non-tenure track faculty workers at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, announced that they were beginning to collect their union authorization cards and their union will represent up to 6,000 workers and will also be part of the UAW. Hell yeah, big organizing day in Boston mm-hmm. last week. Yeah, I feel like Boston has had a lot going on, uh, really. And it's, it's awesome to see. I mean, there are rallies planned on February 14th in support of the Union Drive with messages like, the best Valentine's Day card is a union authorization card, which rocks. Correct. Because that is. Like, imagine, and, and like, not only to to your coworkers, but even to your partners, because, hey, think about it. 
you're going to be able to have a better life, which is going to make your your entire livelihood more sustainable. It's almost like a love letter to everyone in your life. Yeah. And, it's true. And you can dual card as long as the other card is just a homemade Valentine's Day card. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so like with so many of the academic unions that we've talked about, the cost of living and really just every union, uh, is, has been a really big issue for workers there. Uh, under, I understand that perhaps some of our listeners may not have the most sympathy for the, the faculty and employees of Harvard University, but they are still workers, and they deserve a living wage. And they point out, the union, that the average monthly rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Cambridge is $2,700 a month. What? Which is $32,000 a year. And, for rent. And, and I just, just also... Just rent. You know, when, it, when talking about the sympathy thing, these are non-tenure track faculty. You know, the only mm-hmm. people who get tenure are the bootlickers. So they're not mm-hmm. included, so it's a little bit better. Now, how much do they make when comparing their rent to a $32,000 a year rent? They make as little as $50,000 per year. That's right. of their wages goes to rent. So you need two roommates for a one-bedroom apartment. Also, like, fucking Harvard? Yeah. You're not paying your faculty more than $50,000? You're like the shorthand for a prestigious institution. I mean, half of the student body at Harvard probably makes more than that as their allowance. Yeah, just their walking around money is more than you have in a year. Yeah. Yeah, like it's ridiculous. What we're saying like, is rob the students. No, we're not saying <laughs> well, no, that. But, <laughs> like, like, what's the endowment at Harvard? Like twenty billion dollars. It's some absolutely unfathomable amount it's of money. It's an eight percent share in Northrop Grumman or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's like a five percent share in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> where and and like and yet they're nickel and diming the staff, paying them that paying them to the point where their rent is. Over half their wages. Like it's ridiculous how cheap these administrators are at these universities, these incredibly rich universities. The same thing we heard at Yale from the, the grad student workers and or the, the faculty that are organizing there. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and the uh, university also has, uh, or the Harvard University also has a list of kind of things that they're going to be organizing around that is very similar to almost every other list of demands that we've seen at other universities, as I pointed out in the last story. So the, that list is improved job security, parental leave, health insurance, addressing inequalities in childcare support, increased protections for international workers. I mean, t- Temple University is screaming in my head right now. Mm-hmm. And the and to strengthen measures against discrimination, harassment, and bullying with a grievance procedure. Mm-hmm. Every sa- they're all the same. It's almost like these should just be rights that are demanded by law. Well, and it's it, it's also like I, I think when we can, we can look at the pattern of how this is the same problem at every university. And we could, I, I would just say, like, if you ever want to point out to people, well, hey, what's the problem with this whole commodification of education thing? Be like, this, mm-hmm. this is the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> like, you don't pay anyone because you're running it as, as a business. 
Yeah, and to, to to also highlight some of the issues that they've been having with, you know, dis- discrimination, harassment, or even just unfair firings, Harvard administration has a history of just firing or forcing out non-tenure workers with decisions that are just made in closed-door meetings and without notice. So workers can just be fired because the board didn't like them. They just, you know, I don't like this person. They're gone. At will they said something the too Marxish. Yeah, probably not at Harvard, but they would but they'd probably say that about this person said that we shouldn't bomb every country in the world. They are clearly a communist. They I saw them <laughs> reading an MMT book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean it's yeah, it's it's ridiculous that they're facing these horrible conditions and so we're really glad to see that these workers are unionizing. They're requesting voluntary recognition, but you know, we know that's not going to happen. So they are also prepping for a official card drive to start prepping for a NLRB election. So we will definitely keep folks posted on this and the Northeastern University drive as they continue. But it's been a long episode, folks, and it's time for the meme review. That's right. Yes, it is about time. And I already mentioned Temple University. And so let's start with a Temple University meme. Yeah. I love. I I just really like this because this isn't even. This is only sort of a meme. Like so, this is somebody's tweeting. This is a, a at Lauren Barbado who is tweeting at Temple University itself, saying, "I found a scab for my class, so I made a new Canvas module to help them out." And then it's a screen cap of the art of the uh, module that she made, and it's scab resources. Welcome. And then the next item, the right to strike, National Labor Relations Board. Next item, scab definition, (laughs) Merriam-Webster. Next one, why are people who cross picket lines called scabs? (laughs) And then, today in labor history, scab used for the first time. And then finally, how a beloved giant rat won free speech rights. Hell yeah, (laughs) we love a good scabby reference. (laughs) Oh <laughs> yeah i also so love that i don't know how canvas works so it does say modules death and dying so i don't know if that's the name of the class or the overall thing that they added the module to but i do love that there's just like a little touch of morbidity at the top as well yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah uh then our next one is you know actually i didn't even look at this one before but it's this shoe sticking out from underneath uh, a chair and it says it's under a it's under a cubicle wall. So it's the oh, person on one wall. side. Of, yeah, they're on one side of the cubicle partition. They're sticking their foot under to the other, like, <laughs> next cubicle over. Oh, okay. Uh, the the text on this one is me. I really need to stop distracting my coworkers. And then also me. And it's this photo. is There's little googly eyes on the, on the tip <laughs> of his shoe. <laughs> like, yeah. It looks like a wide snake or something. Yeah. Like a kind of a, do- a doofy snake. <laughs> yeah and then there's a oh, little yeah, speech the bubble yeah. from yeah. the little googly eyes on the shoe and it just says you deserve a thriving wage <laughs> <laughs> i love a thriving yeah. wage hell yeah. yeah you know uh i i told one of my co-workers i was driving him home because uh, his wife had his car and uh i don't remember what he was talking about but um he was t- something about goofing off on the job and i was like well it's important to act your wage and i like blew his mind <laughs> Because he hadn't heard that one before. I think he thought Hell I made yeah. it up, but I didn't. It's so good. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't make it up. If no, but <laughs> you don't have to tell him that. You can take credit for things. Just do it. That just makes me my dad. If you repeat a joke and you act like you thought of it, then you're just my dad, and that's no good. 
Wow. All right. All right. Don't worry. I won't Fair tell enough. your dad you said that. <laughs> you could tell him. He wouldn't care. <laughs> All right. So but yeah, so one. I appreciated this next one because frankly, I feel like I should have used this in my job search because I got this question a lot. Um, and it's so... This is the, like, uh, I think a lot of people have seen the Dr. Manhattan format. Uh, commonly, I think, mostly used recently in the the source. I made it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Format. But so you've got just Dr. Manhattan with this huge, like, beam or this, like, aura of light around him. And then the person who's, like, being blown away by it. And they're in the corner, like can you explain this gap in your resume? And then on Dr. Manhattan, no, I signed an NDA. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I swear, I should have thought of that. That is, yeah. the, I'm sure that works. That's the worker equivalent of saying it's a national security interest, which is really yeah. <laughs> great that we have one of those. <laughs> uh, my favorite one that I saw this week is uh, this one, which is the... Uh, this is based on an old propaganda poster, which is like what it's supposed to be refusing alcohol or something like that, or or yeah, and and then it just is usually captioned like "nyet," mm-hmm. yeah, like, nyet, no. which is uh, <laughs> and this is instead the hand that is holding that would have been holding out the alcohol instead is holding out a little book that is labeled surplus labor value, and there's a little <laughs> hammer and sickle on it, and in, the person who is blocking it says, "No thanks, Kami, that belongs to my boss," which <laughs> I just think that this is like if ever you see someone come into the the comment section this almost reminds me of the uh the um hide the pain herald but with lenin's face it's just yeah. that good of a reaction photo but like they're saying no communism is bad and like well no we're on the side of the workers and they're like you're never on the side of the workers and you just post that and be like this is this is you right here saying that well, you this, don't want your surplus value. <laughs> yeah, this is the attitude that people really have. It reminds I was watching mm-hmm. Nate Bargatze's new um, stand up. He's a really normie comedian, but he's pretty funny. And uh, he he was recounting how stupid he was that when he, he was younger, he found twenty dollars on the ground at a Walmart and he went to turn it in. And he asked a guy like, <laughs> "Is this yours?" And the guy said, "Yes." So he gave it to him. <laughs> That's the same thing. When you just say that belongs to my boss, you have. Handing twenty dollars you found on the ground to a random guy, brain. <laughs> and then yeah, it, it it reminds me of that the the meme that people would rip on where the 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 tweet the guy would be like, you know, if it where it's the 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 whole proposition is which would you rather have a billion dollars or a book explaining how to be a million yeah. a billionaire? And the the guy's like, oh, all these idiots are taking the money. I'm taking the book. I'm taking lunch time. with Jay Z every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just so because it's this is what hustle culture, aka bourgeois propaganda, does to your brain. Don't fall for it, folks. No, and a good way to get outside of bourgeois propaganda is to do exactly what the next meme says, which is uh, it's just the it's in quote marks. So it says, "Dress for the job you want," and then it shows a couple of gnomes feeding some frogs with large spoons. What looks to be some stew out of a sled. Which is <laughs> yeah. a perplexing arrangement of things, but I like it. Whatever they got going on. Because uh, speaking of hustle culture, that other meme where it's like, screw hustle and grind. I want whatever this is. And it's just the sleepy time bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's exactly that that style of meme. And I, I do love it. But it also really reminds me of those like weird 
portrait paint like quote unquote paintings that you see in like your grandparents' house that are ha- hanging yeah. on the wall. Either just like a photo of the deer in the woods or something like that. But two I really two baby feel like- farmers on a dusty trail, and one is says to the other, "Been farming long." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really has that vibe. I, I just I like it. It's nice and homey. But uh, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode, and we want to thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We are entirely listener-supported, so we appreciate that. You get access to all of our overtime episodes. We're going to be finishing up this part of the Unions of the Mob Reputation versus Reality series in the next couple weeks. And it's honestly riveting. You'd love it. I promise. Uh, And since we're entirely listener supported it's how we get this show done write us a review somewhere follow john on twitter at facebook villain follow the pod at work stoppage pod listen to bp blood us listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity bro.